Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, April 28th. 2017. I think I can make it. Man, this was a tough, tough week. I feel like I'm going to have to go into therapy for depression or something. Man, that was awful. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of really crazy things being said out there, and we take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we need to be studying Instead of the Word of God, yeah, that's oftentimes how that works. And over and again, we demonstrate that what's being taught isn't even remotely close to what God's Word really says. In fact, what God's Word says is so much better than what these people are saying. It's just mind-boggling to us that anyone would be listening to this nonsense. But human nature being what it is after the fall, that we are by nature objects of God's wrath, born dead in trespasses and sins, left to our own devices, we always steer into idolatry. In fact, idolatry is really our default setting. And so what we demonstrate here is there's a lot of people who are not bending the knee to what God's Word says at all. They're not preaching what God's Word reveals at all. They're literally making up their own Jesus, their own God, and making, trying to make the Bible conform to their idolatrous ideas, which is why we end up with the train wreck kind of sermons that we've heard this entire week uh, during our Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. Now, let's talk about what we're going to do today. We're going to listen to contestants 6 and 7 And uh, we will get the uh, voting open uh, for this year's uh, contest sometime over the weekend. I'm, you know, I'm a little bit challenged time-wise just because of the many things I'm juggling at the moment. But we will get get that up, and we'll keep it up for more than a week, so that you'll y'all will have plenty of time. And if I need to extend the time so that y'all can 
have time to you know to consider and vote, then no problemo. We'll we'll uh, we'll ex- extend it a little bit into May, but no later than like May 10th or May 11th at the latest uh, as far as deciding the winner. But uh, let's talk about who contestants six and seven are in this year's worst Easter sermon of the year contest. We're going to be heading to Scotland to Mayfield Mayfield Salisbury Parish Church as we listen to Scott McKenna. And his message, just titled Easter Sunday, uh, that's the name of it. And uh, it' not a very long sermon, but we needed to get you know a contestant in there that kind of represented the um, the total left liberal type of thing. Scott McKenna has competed in the past, so we wanted to uh, give him another opportunity for the crown, if you would, uh, the of worst Easter sermon of the year. And then we're going to head out to All Nations Church in Chicago, Illinois, as we listen to Dr. Matthew Stevenson and his Easter sermon titled The Walking Dead. And uh, I've listened to this thing three times now. This will be the fourth time I've listened to it. I cannot. (laughs) There are portions of this. I am just slack-jawed as far as, I don't know what he 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 means, and so maybe you know four is a charm, you know something like that. But anyway, the, that will be what we do today uh, for our episode of Fighting for the Faith. We will put a break in there between the two sermons. So uh, let's get to it. And uh, since we're going to begin with a bad sermon, yeah, I think we better do this right. Here we go. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's Contestant number six comes to us via Mayfield Salisbury Parish Church out there in Scotland. Uh, Scott McKenna presiding. The name of the message is just Easter Sunday. That's how it's billed on their YouTube channel. And uh, the description says, Resurrection means God is within us now. Not sure what that means, but uh, we'll give him an opportunity to develop his thoughts and his thinking. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here is Scott McKenna and uh, his Easter sermon for 2017. Here we go. Let us pray. Holy God, Sacred mystery, bless our meditations. Sacred mystery? Has he been reading emergent poetry? That we may be one with you, that our thoughts may be shaped and informed. One with you? That sounds like either pantheism or panentheism. By your presence and overflowing love. Amen. The Easter story 
is central and crucial to the Christian faith. The resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead lies at the core of the church's doctrines and creeds. The 16th century reformers such as Calvin and Knox favoured the Apostles' Creed in which we say, I believe in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. For 2,000 years, in scripture, doctrine, and creed, the church has confessed the resurrection of Jesus. Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Anglican, Reformed, Pentecostal, the resurrection is central to all denominations and traditions. Yes, that's right. And it's the bodily resurrection. Jesus actually walked out of the tomb and physically allowed himself to be handled. And uh, he even had the scars from his crucifixion to show to his disciples. Yeah, it's a bodily resurrection. Jesus said to his disciples when he appeared to them at one time, do not be afraid. A you know a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Yeah, you see, you kind of got the idea there. A recent survey conducted for the BBC of two thousand people found that twenty three percent of Christians do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus. Of Christians who regularly attend church, 57% completely believe in the resurrection of Jesus. The most curious statistic in the survey was that 9% of non-religious people believe in the resurrection of Jesus. What on earth that means, I do not know. Four days ago, a high-profile cleric in the Church of England said that those who do not believe in the resurrection cannot be Christian. What do we believe? I wonder if we were to take a survey, how the statistics would bear up. Surveys of this sort are next to useless. When I was studying for my Bachelor of Divinity at St. Andrews some 25 years ago, one of my lecturers was stopped in the street by a sociology student who was carrying out a survey. The student asked her, do you believe in God? She looked at the student fiercely, as she did regularly, <laughs> and said, I'm a theologian, and walked off. In other words, what do you mean? when you use the word God. The same is true 
when we speak of the resurrection. When I have been asked, do you believe in the resurrection, in surveys conducted for national newspapers, they always phone you on Thursday or Friday of Holy... You'll notice he's uh, already distancing himself from like the just the really easy, honest definition of resurrection. One minute, there's a dead body. The next minute, the body is alive. And, well, the person is alive. And their body is up and moving around. They're eating. They're talking. They're... You see what I'm saying here? Um, Seems pretty straightforward. I find it impossible to answer yes or no. To resurrection. It's impossible to answer yes or no. Any degree of integrity. I see. No would certainly be wrong. But given what it would mean in the survey, yes would also be wrong. I see. <laughs> is it me, or is he just engaging in obfuscation? You know, so you'll notice he did not begin his sermon with, "He is risen. He's risen indeed." Alleluia. No, I did. He 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 needs to be very careful how he defines he is risen. He, he, he to maintain his integrity, his integrity, of course, not the Bible's integrity. As the late Bishop of Durham. David Jenkins so memorably put it, the resurrection must be more than a mere conjuring trick with bones. Conjuring trick, yeah. So (laughs) walking out of your grave uh, on the third day after you were crucified, that's just a mere conjuring trick with bones. Yeah, yeah, okay. Jenkins was making the point that the resurrection is real. Yeah. But what is it? It's really real, but it's got to be more than a conjuring trick with bones. I mean, you you know, because dead people don't walk out of graves on the third day after they were killed. What do we mean? Yeah, what do you mean? There is no account of the resurrection in any of the Gospels. Oh, I see, yeah. There, no one was actually there to watch, you know, while Jesus' body went from dead to alive. Yeah. It, it, sadly, apparently, only the angels witnessed that. The resurrection itself is not recorded anywhere. Oh, yeah. This is, this is profoundly deep. So, you know, we can just define it any old way we want, right? I mean, this is straight-up unbelief. Straight-up unbelief. Now, let me let me read from Matthew 28 again, the account of, uh, you know, from Matthew's gospel on, you know, of the resurrection. Starting in verse 1, chapter 28, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven, came and rolled back the stone, sat on it, His appearance was like lightning, his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled, became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He has risen as he said. 
Come see the place where he lay. Now, you think about, you know, Jesus. He said, tear down this temple, and I'll build it again in three days. The temple he was speaking of was the temple of his what? His body. Yeah. See, and when Jesus died, remember he said, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit into your hands. Oh, Lord, I commit my spirit. And, you know, and Jesus died. His, his physical body stopped breathing. The blood stopped flowing. And uh, he assumed room temperature, and you kind of get the idea. But here, he's not there because he has risen as he has said. And so the question is, well, what does that mean exactly? Although nobody was there to actually witness the moment when his body went from not breathing to breathing, um, <laughs> you know, that does not take away from the fact that Jesus himself, you know, said that he would rise again. He was talking about his body. And then in Luke 24, starting at verse 36, it says that as the disciples were talking about these things, the fellows coming back from Emmaus, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and they were frightened. They saw, thought that they saw a spirit. A ghost. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? Why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. He said, Have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish. He took it and ate it before them. Yeah, I don't know if you've noticed this, but spirits are incorporeal. That means they don't have bodies. And sitting down and having a meal and being touched is not one of the things that they can do. In the Gospels, we have appearances of the risen Christ, but no details or image of Jesus rising from the dead. Right, so we can just interpret that silence as ambiguity, right? There is no record of an appearance of Jesus to Jewish or Roman authorities or to individuals or groups who are not disciples. Right, only the disciples were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. These are not incidental or peripheral points. Ah. God's appearance in the world is always elusive. Divine mystery is always impenetrable. Uh-huh. So you're making an absolute about divine mystery and then f basically foisting that on the gospel's accounts of Jesus' bodily appearances after he was dead. The experience of resurrection occurs in Believers. Ah, I see. So, yeah, the 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 experience of resurrection. I I have no idea what that is, but the experience of resurrection happens inside of a believer. See, because Jesus didn't actually appear to non-believers, and you know, mystery is impenetrable. I mean, that's an absolute here. <laughs> this is this is unbelief. The Apostle Paul says, if Christ has not been raised, then we will not be raised. It's just kind of that simple. In the heart, soul, and mind of those who follow Jesus, 
to encounter the risen Christ, to be at one with the living God, is the climax of the human journey. The way in which individuals encounter the sacred will differ in each case. Encounter the secret. Hmm. That sounds like a category of Gnosticism. Mm-hmm. No wonder this smelled like pantheism. But will be no less transformative. What do we mean when we speak of resurrection? In our lesson today, taken from the book of Acts, the Apostle Peter spoke to the crowd of Jesus, and he spoke of Jesus being raised on the third day. Peter spoke not of believing Jesus, believing stories about his life and all that he did, but believing in Jesus. That's crucial. Not of believing Jesus, but believing in Jesus. There is a significant difference between believing someone and believing in someone. To believe in someone is a more personal, intimate, and life-changing relationship than one in which we interact at an informational or superficial level, no matter how important the information is. To believe in someone is to invest something of yourself in them. It's much more intimate. Peter encouraged the crowd, the crowd not to believe Jesus, but to believe in Jesus. It becomes personal and intimate. The third day. Peter told the crowd that Jesus was raised on the third day. For me, details in Scripture are never incidental. The authors have carefully crafted these stories, and each detail means something. To the Jewish mindset, it's suggestive. Details are suggestive of other stories. That's deliberate, not accidental. Names, storyline. Boy, he's really trying to go a long way to just get around the obvious. Jesus bodily rose from the grave. And imagery are almost always suggestive of other stories. In the book of Genesis... In the story of Abraham and the binding of his son Isaac, we are told that the drama unfolds on the third day. This is what we read in Genesis. Yeah, that third day stuff is important. And in this particular portion of Genesis, this is type and shadow pointing to the reality, which is Christ. After these things, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him. And his son Isaac, he cut the wood for the burnt offering and set out and went to the place in the distance that God had shown him. On the third day, 
Abraham looked up and saw the place. Now, isn't this interesting? Um, yeah, I've I've preached on this text and pointed out how it points directly to Christ. By the way, in the, in you, if you were to read First and Second Chronicles, you would find that when the temple was built, it was built on Mount Moriah. Uh huh. And remember, the punchline on of all of this is that on the Mount of the Lord it will be provided because God provided the sacrifice. Third day talk. This is all pointing to Jesus' death and resurrection. I would argue that a good way to look at what Abraham is doing is this is dress rehearsal in type and shadow of Jesus' own crucifixion on Mount Moriah, which is where he was crucified. Yeah, just connect the biblical dots here. Not too hard to do. Far away. It was on Mount Moriah. But I'm pointing out this fact that he's trying to point to this as somehow it's indicative of, well, we don't want to talk about the resurrection as if it's real, like, you know, the body actually got out of the grave. That would be a conjuring trick of bones and stuff. But somehow the typology is going to undo the reality, really? That Abraham prepared wood and fire, bound his son to the altar, and raised the knife for the sacrifice. A ghastly story, a vivid story, with many, many, many meanings. But the drama took place on the third day. Out of death, possible death, came life, new life, renewal, a complete new beginning for God and God's people. In the letter to the Colossians, the Apostle Paul makes the very same point as Peter did. Paul wrote to the churches in Colossae, If you have been raised from the if you have been raised with Christ. And you have. Yeah, just cross-reference Romans 6 there. In our baptisms, we are buried and raised with Christ. Seek the things above. If you have been raised with Christ, he said. For Paul, being raised with Christ is a present, immediate, life-changing reality. It's not some far-off event. If Yeah, let's let Paul interpret that for us. Romans 6, Romans 6 is our text here. What shall we say then? Verse 1, are we to continue in sin so the grace may abound? Well, by no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin." For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Yeah, and then I would also point out that in the same epistle that he's reading from Colossians, uh, in Colossians chapter 2, I would note this. Here's what it says, uh, verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy 
or empty deceit according to human tradition and according to the elemental spirits of the world, not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily. You have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by the putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God has made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. So there you go. So yes, being raised with Christ was a present and very personal thing for the Apostle Paul, and he connected it over and again, to when he was baptized. We ought to do the same. Have been raised with Christ. Set your mind on the things that are above. For you have died now, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. It's all in the present tense. Yes. You have died. Right, and Colossians 2 says that that took place in our baptism. And we were raised with him in our baptism. That's what Romans 6 says also. Your life is hidden with Christ now. It is Peter's believe in him. Mm-hmm. Believe in Jesus. This is what we call liberal uh, biblical gymnastics. Yeah, He's trying to do the equivalent of a twisting triple quadruple dum- somersault over the pommel horse and onto the uneven bars and then over the rings and into the pool and all that kind of stuff and stick the landing too. (laughs) Quite the feed. Only the believers will see. Right, yeah, that's correct. The spiritual writer, Martin Laird, tells the story of a young prisoner who self-harmed in order to escape the hurt inside. With the help of the Prison Phoenix Trust, the prisoner began to learn how to pray. Laird writes, After learning how to meditate and practicing it twice a day for several weeks, the young prisoner speaks movingly of what he has learned. Quote, I just want you to know that after only four weeks of meditating, half an hour in the morning and half an hour at night, the pain is not so bad. And for the first time in my life, I can see a tiny spark of something within me that I can like and love. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, wow. (laughs) that spark talk that's pantheism here yeah we have listened to apostles Peter Paul what of the evangelists well actually no you haven't listened to them you've listened to them out of context and you've omitted particular data while going hmm about certain data what of the evangelists yeah what of them Matthew's account of the resurrection begins after the Sabbath, yeah. as the first day of the week was dawning, 
the use of such imagery, the darkness of the night being dispelled by the light of the morning, which happens every 24 hours. It's kind of a natural occurrence, you know. It's not incidental. Oh, okay. It's very similar to that of John's Gospel. Ah. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness did not overcome it. These are not incidental details. Yeah, I feel like you're missing the forest because of a tree. It's an image of light rising in the morning. The sun rising in the morning. Which is what happened. And the reason I know that is because it's happened every morning since. You know, that's kind of how that works. And it happened like every morning even before then, going all the way back to the beginning of time. The same is true of the stone. Yeah. In Jewish writing, images are intentionally suggestive. Right, yes. Stone, yeah. The stone may draw us back to Jacob at Bethel. Right, where he put his head on the stone, right. He used one of the stones of Bethel as a pillow. Right. In his dream, he saw a ladder on earth, the top of which reached to heaven. On the ladder, there were angels ascending and descending. In the dream, the Lord stood beside Jacob and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and of Isaac. In Matthew's account, the angel has descended from heaven. On waking from his dream, Jacob said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He named the place Bethel, meaning the house of God. Jacob said, This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Through mention of the stone in the faith narrative and the presence of the angel, Matthew hints at the empty tomb being the new gate of heaven. This is the gate of heaven. (laughs) You know, it's not totally wrong. I mean, it's kind of usable, but... He's using this to get around the fact that Jesus bodily rose from the grave. Is it possible that the angel is a reminder also of the angel Michael? Is it possible? Prince who was prophesied to appear when the dead shall arrive. In the book of Daniel, we read many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake and Michael the angel was there all of these images are suggestive suggestive they all talk of new birth new life Matthew draw mentions the guards who are at the tomb in order to guard the dead there's a subtle contrast here those who are charged with guarding the dead become like the dead, while the one who was dead could not be more fully alive. The guards, representing the powers of this world, are as nothing, empty, lifeless, in contrast to those who are filled with the Spirit of Jesus.
At its core, the resurrection is about union, intimate union with God. Jesus is not immortal because he was raised from the dead. He was raised from the dead because he was immortal. He already was in tune at one with the Holy One. Right, he was already entombed at one with the Holy One. This is monism, pantheism, yeah. This is a mysticism, Gnostic worldview here. Jesus repeatedly taught his followers to see the kingdom of heaven within themselves. See it, taste it, feel it for themselves. See the kingdom of heaven within themselves, Uh uh-huh. Eternity is now. Having lived a life in God on earth, in death, he was alive. In Judaism, Moses was raised to new life, and so too Enoch and Elijah. In an argument with the Sadducees, Jesus said that the great patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, are already alive in God. He tells them that. In a mystical vision, in a moment of transfiguration, Jesus stood alongside Moses and Elijah, who were already alive in God, already raised from the dead. In his letter to the Galatians... Yeah, they haven't been resurrected yet, no. Paul said, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live But Christ lives in me. Eternity, resurrection, is now. The resurrection narratives are heavily laden stories, packed with potent and suggestive imagery. Potent and suggestive, yeah. All of which is crafted and knitted together to convey the message that in this life we have died and are already raised with Christ. Our death is not an end to life, but a transition. Peter said, Believe in him. Amen. So there you go, Scott McKenna. I mean, talk about a long way to go for pretty much nothing. Yeah, that's kind of the thing with liberal mysticism. (laughs) <laughs> usually going where where was the beef in that notice he was there was well no clear proclamation of Christ crucified for our sins and his bodily raised from the grave for our justification nothing like that at all instead it was well just kind of weird if you know what i mean All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash piratechristian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at piratechristian. Quick break when we come back. Our seventh and final contestant in this year's Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. 
You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> sir can i help you yes do you have a copy of 30 days in the desert to learn your purpose and to cast the vision to the ignorant masses by s furtick qwz uh well i don't know the book sir uh, never mind never mind how about 101 ways to build a mega church and make big bucks i well some american gentleman whose name eludes me at the moment i believe his last name rhymes with shin uh no well we haven't gotten in stock sir <sighs> oh well not to worry not to worry can you help me with the screw tape letters is c.s lewis no I beg your pardon? No, Harold Wapcat. I think you'll find C.S. Lewis wrote the screw tape letters. No, no, Lewis wrote the screw tape letters with one C. This is the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. The screw tape letters with two C's. Yes, I should have said that. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. Hmm, funny, you've got a lot of books here. Yes, we do, but we don't have the screw tape letters with two C's by Harold Wapcat. Hmm, pity, it's more thorough than Lewis's. More thorough? Yes, I, I wonder if it might be worth looking through all of your screw tape letterses. No, sir, all of our screw tape letterses have one C. Are you sh- quite sure? Quite. Hmm. Not worth just looking? Definitely not. <sighs> all right, how about the great divorce? Yes, well, we have that. That's G-R-A-T-E, divorce, but also by Harold Wapcat. Yes, well, in that case, we don't have it. We don't have anything by Harold Wapcat. He actually, he's not very popular. Not the problem of pain. That's P-R-O-L-P-R-O-A-B-L-U-M. No. The Chronicles of Narnia with a K. No. How about Out of the Violent Planet? Definitely not. Sorry to trouble you. Not at all. Good morning. Good morning. Oh! Yes. I I wonder if you might have a copy of Perilous Landra. No, as I said before, we're right out of Harold Wapcat. No, not Harold Wapcat. C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. Yes. You mean Paralandra? No, Perilous Landra by C.S. Lewis. That's Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian. No, well, we don't have Perilous Lander by C.S. Lewis with two S's, the well-known feminist lesbian theologian, and perhaps to save time, I should add that we don't have Dandy Landra by C.S. Lewis, or the penultimate battle by Clive Staples' Chewbacca, or even Out of the Silent but Deadly Planet by B.S. Lewis with four eyes and a silent Q. What a pity, that's my favorite. Why don't you try Zondervan? I, I did, they sent me here. Did they? I, I wonder. Oh, do go on, please. Yes, I, I wonder if you might have the amazing adventures of Pastor Perry Noble and his intrepid spaniel Stig amongst the giant purpose-driven pygmies of Beckles. Volume 8. No, don't have that. Funny. Got a lot of books here. Well, I mustn't keep you standing here, thank you. Oh, well, do you have... No, no, we haven't, no, we haven't. But, 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 Sorry, but, but, it's 1 o'clock, we're closing for lunch. I, I saw it, I saw it. What? What? I, I saw it over there. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Meyer. Yes. B-O-D-I-E-S? Yes. M-A-Y-E-R? Yes! Yes, well, we do have that, as a matter of fact. The expurgated version. Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite catch that. The expurgated version. The expurgated version of Religious Bodies of America by F.E. Mayer? The one without the Lutherans. The, The one without the Lutherans? They've all got the Lutherans. It's a standard religious body. The Lutherans are in all the books. Well, I don't like them. They baptize infants. All right, I'll remove it. 
any other religious bodies you don't like? I don't like the Presbyterians. Right, the Presbyterians, right. Presbyterians. There you are. Any others you don't like? Any others? The Methodists. The Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists, the Methodists. Oh, yeah, they are. There you are. No Lutherans, no Presbyterians, no Methodists. There's your book. I can't buy that. It's torn. I wonder if you have... Um... No, go on. Ask me anything. We've got lots of book here. You know, it's a bookshop. How about Osteen brushes his teeth? No, no, we don't have that one. Funny. Uh, the Gospel According to Rob Bell. No, no, no. Try me again. Uh, I know. Uh, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. No, no, no. What? 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 Yeah, Martin Chemnitz is the two natures in Christ. Martin Chemnitz is two two... Huh? <laughs> yes! We got it! I see it somewhere! Yes! <laughs> I found it! It's here! Got it! Yes! Here we are! Martin Chemnitz is two natures in Christ! There's your book! Now buy it! I don't have enough money. I'll take a deposit. I, I don't have any money. I'll take a check. I, I don't have a checkbook. I got a blank one. I, I don't have a bank account. Right. I'll buy it for you. There we are. There's change. There's some money for a taxi on the wait, way. There's wait, 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 wait. What, 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 what? I can't read. You can't read. Right? Sit down. Sit down. Sit, sit. Are you sitting comfortably? Right. Chapter one. Because the person of the incarnate Christ is made up of two natures, the divine and the human, united into one hypostasis, there follows from this a communion of attributes. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that people who talk about being united to God and that spark of divinity within them is teaching Gnosticism, which is an enemy of Christianity. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute an amount that you pick. There are four ranks in our crew. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at twenty four ninety five a month, and then from there, Master Gunner at forty nine ninety five a month, and then Quartermaster at ninety nine ninety five a month. This is a great way to support us. Of course, if you would like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute, you could do so by clicking on the donate button, 
or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, it is time for our seventh and final contestant for the 2017 Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. I have no favorite this year. I've learned my lesson. I I have no idea where this one's going to go this year, so I will be popping some popcorn and watching as you guys vote on this. But uh, let's uh, do this right here. Hey, ho! The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's final contestant is Dr. Matthew Stevenson from All Nations Church, Chicago, Illinois. The name of the sermon is The Walking Dead. And no joke, they have prop tombstones. On the stage there at uh, All Nations Church, and I just don't even know how to interpret what it is that we're going to hear. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. Here's Dr. Matthew Stevenson, The Walking Dead. All right. We're getting ready for the word. Do me a favor. I want you to look at the shoes of everybody on your row. If anybody has on gaiters... Slap them real hard. I mean, I'm sick of it. Sick of it. Tired of it. Just worn out from it. I'm weary of it. Tired of it. I saw somebody walking to church today with a royal blue suit with some fresh lugs. I remember lugs boot. How you got on fresh lugs is beyond me. Who? So his Easter sermon is starting off with a conversation about people's kicks. Okay. Canis! Yes. Oh, praise his name. Listen, we have some exceptional testimonies from our Friday night healing service. We have not stopped getting emails and reports about it. There was a, a girl who had who was born with cerebral palsy who had never said anything. She called her mother nine times. They prayed when when Jamal, who was praying for her, told her goodbye. She said bye-bye. And her mom had never heard her speak. We saw legs grow out. It was unreal in this place. (laughs) You saw legs grow out. By the way, that's a parlor trick. Anybody who's doing the leg-growing miracle, you have to put miracle in quotes, total charlatan and huckster. Yeah, it's it's just yeah. We've covered it in the past here at Fighting for the Faith. It's a parlor trick. You pull the person's shoe out from their heel 
and then you push it back and it creates the illusion that the leg is growing when it's just a magic trick. The mother of the girl with cerebral palsy has some growth, some tumors that she could not feel when she got in the car. It was amazing. We had some serious miracles. And uh, I praise God that I live in a house that still believes in the power of God. And I thank God for all. Did she get a doctor to confirm that the tumors were gone? Yeah, probably not. She just didn't feel them anymore. Uh Uh-huh. 80% of you that agree. For the other 20% that don't care, we pray that by the end of the service, you repent and that you turn. Amen. And uh, so we're going to go ahead and we're going to prepare for the word of God. Who is ready? I've invited some friends to help with this message today. And last year, the one who helped me preach was Judas. And um, he talked about his perspective on why he had to hang himself. Next year, we might do Barabbas. But uh, this year, we're going to do an angle of the resurrection that I'm certain you don't know about. And we're going to give you full perspective on why it had to happen the way. Wow, something we'd never heard before. Wow, this ought to be interesting. That it did. Put on your seatbelts. Let's go. All right, so they have an intro video. All Nations Church presents an illustrated sermon, a thriller. Yeah, they're going to go with the Michael Jackson thriller theme. Destined to change your life. That's what it says on the video. Oh, Dr. Matthew Stevenson III. Are you ready to be raised? Okay, The Walking Dead, The Untold Resurrection Thriller. Yeah, okay, so the intro video. You have got to be kidding me. (laughs) Wow. Yeah, that's right. The uh, church's um, (laughs) dance company has come out to perform Thriller. We will fast forward through their theatrical uh, representation of Michael Jackson's Thriller with kind of the idea that that really is weird for Resurrection Sunday. You know, I'm just saying. So we will go now to the teaching portion right after the church's dance troupe. Here again is Dr. Matthew Stevenson. The story of the resurrection is chronicled almost exactly the same in all of the synoptic gospels. They all record various angles and perspectives of what happened around the events surrounding Jesus' death. Uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record synonymously the conspiracy, the anger, the frustration, uh, the history around Jesus' trial and his death. Each of them have a different strength to their version of the story. Some of them have the strength of the onlookers, the mixed crowds that observed him, that watched him. Another version of the gospel has the strength of the legal process and what happened during his trial, his surrender. The strength of the legal process. Yeah, I I didn't even consider how strong that legal process was. In fact, I've never read a single theologian or church father talking about the strength of the legal process. 
But what I appreciate is Matthew's version of this gospel. Okay. Because he writes it from the perspective of a traditional Jew. And he writes it from the point of view of those who were born to the nation of Israel as naturalized citizens who expected a Messiah to come and avenge them against their foreign opponents and adversaries. And it is with this advantage that Matthew writes his gospel in the mentality of traditional Jews. So then, under the influence of the Holy Ghost, he knows what to emphasize that would get the attention and that would serve as, as its most penetrative source to the Jews. He writes in his gospel and he highlights certain details that the other gospel writers overlook or exclude, probably not purposefully, but probably from his background and his culture. He knows what to say to get the most impact to those that would read his epistle. As perhaps arguably one of the worst of the twelve, a tax collector, one who was seen as one who robbed and took advantage of the poor systemically, taking advantage of them by taxing them irrespective of what their income level would be. He understands how a person and his seat could be seen as non-credible, as non-believable, as one who was faithless, filled with doubt, and probably sacrilegious. But his gospel experience of the, t of the resurrection of Jesus Christ gives us the most poignant examples that highlight why he died the way that he did. For example, in Matthew's gospel, we have a little more detail about the schematics of Jesus' death. Who helped him to carry the cross, for example. The type of vinegar he was given. Matthew clarifies that it was a wine and it was mixed with gall. He gives more specificity on how to receive the story. He also includes the process by which they crafted the crown of thorns. He told, talked about how their hands did it. He gives us detail and he gives us information about the gambling process for his clothes. But he also lets us know that there was a scepter made of a rod, a weed, that was given to him to act as if a staff as he was mocked. So Matthew goes out of his way in a scholarly manner to give us as much detail as possible from his memory to a written vitae of what happened around the angles surrounding Jesus' death. He Is it me or does it seem like he's intentionally picking difficult and polysyllabic words? Yeah, I mean, it sounds to me like he's talking way over the heads of the people there, and I think it's on purpose in order to create the impression that uh, Dr. Matthew Stevenson is a smart fellow. Uh-huh. Highlights the dream of the wife of Pilate who asked her husband, don't crucify this man. He is innocent. And I know he is because of what I dreamed. No other gospel writer includes those details. So then we can rely on Matthew to give us a more thorough presentation of the events as they happened with the eyewitnesses. Now I'm going to a more thorough. I mean, that's weird. I mean, all of the Gospels, in their own ways, are thorough regarding the resurrection and the details chosen to be proclaimed in them, each from an eyewitness account. I like my favorite angle of Matthew's experience, which is found in the 27th chapter of his writings, and it's around verse 50 through 53. Three very simple verses that highlight something that the other gospel writers were perhaps too afraid to write about. 
And there were those examples. There were many things that the other apostles could not write about them for fear that the reader would not conceptualize them. Miracles that Jesus did that they left out of the Gospels because they would cerebrally jar many of the writers. Yeah, where does it say that details were left out for fear of cerebrally jarring readers? There's no text that says this. It's as if he thinks he can go back in time 2,000 years later and read the minds of the apostles and their editorial decisions as far as what to convey and what not to convey. And the motivation, you know, no, he knows the motivation for why they left certain details out. Yeah, no, you don't know that, Matthew. Matthew includes these details in the story and the account of the resurrection to our benefit. The example reads like this. Verse 50 of Matthew 27. And Jesus cried out again with a loud and agonizing voice and gave up his spirit. The Amplified Version says voluntarily. Yeah, Amplified is a false translation. It engages in what's called illegitimate totality transfer, basically pouring into each instance of a word's appearance every possible definition regardless of the context. Sovereignly, dismissing and releasing his spirit from his body in submission to his father's plan. Even in death, the plan of God was in full effect. Verse 51, and at once the veil of the holy of holies of the temple was torn in two. We've read that before. From top to bottom and then the earth shook. We saw that before. And the rocks were split apart. And we saw that before. But this is where the game changes. Verse 52 says, the tombs, plural. And they're not talking about Jesus' tomb because at this point in the story, he didn't have one. The tombs were open. And many bodies of the saints, God's people, who had fallen asleep in death, were raised to life. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city Jerusalem and appeared to many people. We are about to explore the original thriller story. Really, the original thriller story because certain people came out of their tombs uh, upon Jesus' death? Really? Original walking dead. Before any creative human being could become intelligent enough to come up with a concept that a human being could be raised from a death state, Jesus Christ provided for us, even in death, the perfect example about how revolutionary his death on the cross would be. And we need not revisit the factors around why he died and who killed him in Judas and the silver. We relived all of that. Before. Yeah, we don't, we don't need to revisit his death for our sins. Yeah, none of that. Many of us are still accusing those in our churches and inner circle of being the Judas, so we are not without example about betrayal, etc., etc. But what we do not have, is enough stories of men who die and come back. We don't have a lot of that. We don't have a lot of examples of people who live under the plan of death. 
see it, experience it, surrender to it, and then in a moment's notice, decide to get back up. You don't have that. Yeah. Uh, where in the text does it say that when the tombs were open, when Jesus died, that those people decided to get back up from death? Yeah, that seems like pretty interesting data that's totally missing from Matthew. So Jesus gives us this in his story. To understand this theologically, you've got to understand what ruled the earth in the pre-Messiah context. Death. The, the pre-Messiah context. Right. What's that again? You know, was not just a spirit and it was not just a person. It was a whole entire agenda. The agenda of death. So death is an agenda, right? Yeah. Which biblical text says that? Had supreme rulership over everything in creation. Under the sun, death determined everything. When dominion was surrendered from Adam to his deceiver, the deceiver started to use a force to manage his destruction. And the force that the deceiver used was the force of death. Why? Because it was the diametrical opposite of everything God did in Eden. Eden was the place of beginning, of life, of breath, of fruitfulness, of vitality. And so in contrast to what God wanted, Satan, if he was going to be effective in his plot, was going to have to come up with a champion force, one almost equal to life, that those that would not surrender to God would submit to, whether they knew it or not. You see, because if you don't submit to God, you are submitted to death. It's just a matter... Uh -huh. Which biblical text says that, that if I don't submit to God, I'm submitted to death? Do you have a text? about when what you submitted to comes to claim his stuff in you. But if you're not walking in life, you are under the control of death. You just haven't died. We have scripture about the plan of sin. It is opposite of the plan of salvation. The plan of salvation is to give one eternal life, which means that the goal and the objective of sin and the effects of sin on the human race would be a one-on-one, -on -one, uninterrupted encounter with death. Because the Bible says that when sin is conceived, when lust is conceived, that it bringeth forth death. So then, death is the graduated and the matured form of sin and its effects. Sin comes in the life, sin comes on the earth, and it partners with the will of a man. And then I thought death was the consequence, the wages of sin. I seem to recall a biblical text that talks in this way. Comes his escort to a place called death. The whole objective was not just hell, the objective was death. It was to have death reign over your life until you die. To have death control your appetites until you die. To have death be what control your relationships and your thinking and most importantly your purpose until you die.
Oh, no, I wouldn't want death to control my purpose. That sounds terrible. So before the plan of God could be made manifest on the earth, there was a thing that had to be confronted. And in order for Jesus Christ to bring life and life more abundantly, he had to directly deal with what would have prevented it, and it was the plan of death. So the way God handled this was before death had a plan. So death can make plans? Okay. God had one that predated the plan of death. The plan of life is therefore older than the plan of death. And because the plan of life is older, it contains provision for what to do when men want to die. Oh yeah. The plan of life was so exhaustive and so detailed that in it, it contained what to do when death and its agenda would expire. It contained how to get death to say, I quit, I surrender. After all, it is written that at the name of Jesus, every knee, even the knee of death. He's really getting wound up now and getting quite theatrical, you know. Wow. And this plan was so old that in the plan of life, creation was a detail in the plan of life. Creation was not the plan of God. Creation was an addendum to the plan of life. In order for the life agenda to work, it needed a stage to play itself out. So the, the life agenda needed a stage. Okay, yeah, wow. Is this in the Book of Mormon? I Where did you find this? Then the planet became the stage by which the plan of life would manifest itself. And just as soon as the deceiver came to allow for death to start to work, my Bible tells me that the lamb was already from before the foundation of the world. So before scene one, the outcome was already determined. Yeah, I have no idea what he's saying here. Like he's making stuff up and using really big words to make it sound smart. You know, it is really intelligent, but well delivered. Well, yeah. bravo on your theatrical performance. You you clearly have, you know, studied, you know, to be a thespian or something. Not a theologian, but a thespian. This agenda would take many people and this agenda would be uninterrupted. You could not stop death. There were a few occasions where a man of God, for a sign and a wonder, would raise one here, raise one there. But never before in history had a colony of people at one time break open a grave and come back to life. This I'm pretty sure God sprung them out. They didn't spring themselves was a detail that Matthew could not leave out because he was born to the Jews. Religious, hard-hearted, heavy, cerebral, proud, boastful, arrogant Jews. Bitter and not believing in the plan of God for their salvation because when their Messiah came, he didn't look like what they wanted. So he knew I've got to give it to you straight and I've got to leave every detail in this so that you would come to life. And when he died. Why did you do that? That hurt my ears. 
immediately the Jewish scholars started to try to figure out what conspiracy was in place and who stole the body. They were so hard-hearted that they could not have the faith to believe he did what he said. So they immediately started to whisper. Yeah, are your is your paraphrase, which is like really sketchy better than the actual text themselves regarding the resurrection why aren't you reading out a biblical passage here so let's find out who stole him perhaps when he was laying there his disciples came back and they moved his tomb but there's a problem a problem a problem a problem a problem a problem the way a tomb was sealed, you'll understand this in a minute. In the first century world was not by placement. I didn't seal the tomb simply by putting a rock in front of it. The way I would seal a tomb was by cementing the rock to the brick with mortar. I would make sure that you had to have surgical uh, uh, weaponry and almost military strength bulldozers that did not exist. The um, <laughs> you don't know how first century uh, tombs work, do you? Yeah, they would put a body in a tomb, roll a stone over it, and leave it in there for a year to decay, and then come and collect the bones and put them in an ossuary. There's no mention of mortar at all. And no, it was not made out of bricks. In fact, Joseph of Arimathea's tomb was cut from the rock. The point of the seal on the tomb was it was to never, ever be removed. You did not get buried and get unburied. Stay with yeah, you're, you clearly have not done your homework and you do not understand how first century Judah, you know, Judea, especially in Jerusalem, tombs work. What you're saying is historically and factually not true. Warming up. There was no such thing as a wind coming and moving a tomb. And there was no such thing as a hurricane coming and moving a tomb. That thing was not to be removed ever. So if I was Matthew and I was writing to a rebellious nation, I would include this to let them know that whatever happened on this day reversed something that was supposed to be permanent. Watch me. And then if I was reading it as a Jew, I would immediately, in my regard for the Old Testament prophets, I would remember what Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 37. Now, there was a lot of emphasis on the dry bones in the valley of dry bones. We pay a lot of attention to the imagery of that prophecy. But what I appreciate is the interpretation of that prophecy. In the beginning of Ezekiel's prophecy, there is detail about how the bones would come together and about how wind would come and about how they would stand up an exceeding great army. But then Ezekiel interprets his word. Pay attention. And because all Jews had to know the Old Testament prophets, they knew this prophecy backwards and forth. Pay attention. It's a blessing in a minute. And the meaning of the prophecy was this, according to... Those little commands of his, watch me, uh, to pay attention and all that kind of... Reminds me of Foghorn Leghorn. You know... <laughs> He, he, the theatrics here, I mean, they're off the chain. I mean, his delivery is amazing. His biblical accuracy and historical accuracy, not even close to what's really there in the text. This guy is dangerous. I will open 
your tombs. He was talking to Jews when he said that. He says that I'm going to open your tombs and I'm going to raise you up. And I'm going to bring you into your own city. So we didn't see that. We never saw that manifestation. We never saw when that word came to pass. But Jesus said, think not that I have come to destroy the prophets. Here we go. But I have come to fulfill. I am the amen of the prophets. I am the fulfillment of what the prophets have said. So then whatever prophecy was not come to pass before me in 33 years, I've got to fulfill. Watch me. What they said. Yeah, I'm watching. And we saw the fulfillment of all those prophecies up until the dead being raised and going into their own city. Mm. So now- Yeah, the problem is that Ezekiel is actually talking about the day of the great resurrection. When Jesus returns in glory to judge the living and the dead, it, the, what Ezekiel was prophesying has still not been fulfilled. And although there were a few people who got out of their grave when Jesus died, and Matthew records that for us, that's not the fulfillment of Ezekiel. Now we go back to Matthew 27, and we see something extremely iconic, that before this man raised himself, he raised up some say thousands of people. I'll get back there. Now, Who says thousands? Who? I wanted to understand my Sunday school message and my little pretty Easter speech. You got to understand why Paul explained how a man gets changed. In Romans, the sixth chapter, verses one through ten, he talks about how we become crucified in and with Christ. Stay with yep, read it out earlier in the program today, and that's in our baptism. That's what Romans 6 is talking about. Verse 1 says, what shall we say to all of this? Should we continue in sin, after sin, under sin, cohabitating in sin, and practice sin as a habit, so that the gift of grace may increase and overflow? He answers in verse 2, certainly not. How can we, the very ones who died to sin, continue to live in it any longer wish I had a church or are you ignorant of the fact that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus listen were baptized into his what his death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through baptism into his death or through the glory of the power of the father watch this we too might walk habitually in the newness of life abandoning y'all quiet now our old ways yeah notice he read it out it says that we're buried with Christ in our baptism for if we have become one with him permanently united in the likeness of his death, we will also certainly be one with him and share fully, say fully, open your mouth, say fully, in the likeness of his resurrection. So we know that our old self... By the way, if you're wondering, how is it that he's adding these words to it? He's reading from the Amplified, which is not a translation. Hey, hey, hey. Our human nature, the one who didn't have the Holy Spirit, was nailed to the cross with him in order that our body 
of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For the person who has died with Christ, watch me, has been free with the power. Y'all don't want to have no church. See, this is the problem with people in sin cycles. They want to be forgiven, but they don't want to die. They want to be blessed, but they don't want to die. The, uh, that's weird. Everyone who is baptized has been baptized into Christ's death and resurrection. That's what Paul said there in Romans 6. And I also read the cross-reference in Colossians 2 earlier, the other sermon. But it's still sensitive about what people say and do and think. When you become a dead man, you don't care what people say because you can't kill a crucified man. Your problem is you ain't dead enough. Oh, yeah, I'm working it here. Now, if we have died with Christ... We believe that we will also live together with him because we know the self-evident truth that Christ, having been raised from the dead, watch this, will never die again. He's given us our instructions because death no longer has power over him. Watch me. For the death that he died, he died to sin, ending its power. What is the power of sin? Death. And the sinner's debt once and for all, and the life that he lives, he lives to glorify God in unbroken fellowship with him. So that is the fulfillment. Yeah, there's a whole lot of parenthetical words and statements stuck into the text that aren't there because that's what the Amplified does. This is why it's the preferred Bible of the word of faith heresy. What Jesus did was the manifestation and Ezekiel prophesied it. Can I give you my message now? I submit to you, brothers and sisters, that the greatest miracle was not that Jesus raised himself from the dead. It couldn't have been that hard because they showed him with Lazarus he could do it. Yeah, so that wasn't the big deal of Easter. Okay. I submit to you that we, you, me became the point of Christ. You see, we were the only point he had to prove. Them ninjas had him on that cross and they tried to make him perform. And he's like, listen, you don't take my life from me. You ain't even that powerful. I'm laying it down. You don't have the right to take. I'm, I'm volunteering this to you. Mm. They said, you the king of the Jews. He said, I'm whatever you need me to be. I'm whatever you need. He was. Un- yeah, he didn't say that either. Pressure. Come on here, Mr. Preach. To prove anything to them. But there was something he had to prove. And the something he had to prove was not that he could raise himself. But I can look at somebody who died and had been dead. And no matter how long they have been dead, I can raise them back. You see, what he did when he took the authority of death was he reversed the work of death to everybody that died before him. When he made the... How many people do you think were raised? You said thousands. Right? I want to know where you got that number from. Um, yeah, that seems like a paltry number in comparison to the billions and billions of people who've lived and died since then, you know? Before heaven and hell and earth, saying that all power was given unto me, he had to retroactively fulfill that to people who believed it and did not see it. There were people that were believing on the Messiah, but didn't get to see him because they died. Our God is so powerful that those that believe 
This is why when he went up to Mary and Martha, after having raised Lazarus up, he told them, haven't I told you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And Martha said, I know we're going to see it. There's going to come a day when the streets of Pagola and we're going to eat okra with, with Albertina and we're going to have fun with Willa May over there. But Jesus said, no, 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 no. I'm about to give you the remix. Somebody say, Rick, Rick, come on. There was a remix. And the remix was this. I know you think that the resurrection is a day. But I'm about to prove that I am the resurrection. I am the life. All right. So people are on their feet now. He's clearly manipulating them and working them up into a frothy frenzy here. And whoever believes on me, here comes Mr. Preach, even though he was dead, yet, y'all don't want to have no church, shall, come on here and go with me, he lived. The disciples, I'm almost done, was first called Christians at Antioch. Which means that from Matthew 27 to the book of Acts, they didn't know what to call them. I believe they called them the walking dead. Because the first Christians to walk the planet had to conquer. Really, the first Christians were called the walking dead. Mm -hmm. All because you just twisted a bunch of biblical text? I don't think so. There's no evidence for that. Death in order to be an example. He will never leave himself without a remnant. I'll give that to one o'clock. The 12 disciples was gone somewhere scared of persecution. But there were some people who didn't realize persecution had happened yet. Because they fell asleep in death. All they know is one day while they were in Abraham's bosom. Something started rocking. Something started changing. And the force that had been holding them down could not hold them down anymore. He sure does add a lot to the Bible, doesn't he? According to Paul, this is the process everybody has to go through. Ezekiel promised, I will unseal your tombs. I, the Spirit of God, will unseal your tombs. Now, you don't know how to appreciate that because our tombs have to be dug. And so all you need is a shovel to undig them. But when you have been locked in by cement, you don't have the human ability to get beyond a closed tomb. And the reason the Negro next to you is so quiet is because they are perhaps still in a tomb right now. But there's about 66 of us that remembered what it was to be behind something and we could not get out. To be under something and could not get over. Now he's allegorizing a grave. Wow. The need to want to call the Savior, and he could not hear. But the same Spirit, come on, you might want to go to church now, that raised Jesus from the dead. My Bible says he quickened my mortal body. And the word quicken means to bring back to life, to put life back in you. Shout hallelujah. Here is my story. When Jesus died, we know everything else. But we didn't know that there were zombies that walked the earth. I did the research and I found out. We didn't know there were zombies. Okay. Some of them were dead for one year. Oh, some of them were dead for two. 
Yeah, where did you go again to find the account of the thousands that were raised from the grave here? Others of them were dead for 30. Some of them were dead for 90. But everybody that became victim of death before Jesus took the keys of death got to partake in his victory. You see, his victory was a shared one. So then the real miracle was not just that he was raised. The real miracle was that he was now about to raise a raised people. And a ra- so the real miracle was that he was going to raise a raised people. Mm, so it was a big raising thing. Yeah. People. Now listen, these are Jews. So I want you to imagine what this is. He cries out and there was an earthquake. He cries out and the veil is went. But something supernatural. Something uncommon. Something bizarre. Something gruesome. Something hostile. Something extraordinary was about to take place. Everybody who was in their tombs that had been hoping and trusting for something to bring them alive. When Jesus gave the green light through taking the keys of hell. And when he went to Hades and got there. If you were dead, you came back alive. But that ain't the miracle. The real miracle is the Bible say they walked the streets. Now, you can't see this, but the dance troupe has now come back on stage. You know, the people who perform Michael Jackson's thriller. Yeah, all dressed as zombies, you know, and so they've come back on stage to help their pastor, Dr. Matthew Stevenson, to make his point, which isn't even a biblical one. Yeah. And went back to their families. Consider this. What kind of God would reverse the progress of death? They had not decayed. They had no tumors on their face. Their skin came back. If you were dead 30 years, you were nothing but ashes and bones. I died in rebellion, but I'm alive. That person would not have been raised by Jesus. One of your dead loved ones came to breakfast. And they had not decayed. And and, and they didn't have a stench. Lazarus stunk after three days. These guys were dead for years and they looked more healthy than they... Yeah, let's read from the ESV. Uh, Matthew twenty seven fifty two. the tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. That's all we know about this. But they were called saints, which means they didn't die in rebellion. They died in faith. Before they die, what is the lesson? It does not matter. Come on, let's go to church. What's trying to kill you? It does not matter what you are partnered with that's killing you, that's eroding you, that's trying to break you down. Whoever believes upon the Son of God can be brought to life. We are a 
raised nation of people and we have the resurrection in us and that's the reason why we have the resurrection in us can do the works of Jesus had he not raised them zombies up there would be no gifts of the spirit there would be so there would be no gifts of the spirit if he hadn't raised zombies wow okay Pentecost there would be no church growth death had to be confronted before gifts could be given but thanks be unto God that he who ascended descended first and he went to the lower parts of the earth and he took the keys of death so that your padlock could be broken and you could be Yeah, just because you scream it like that doesn't mean your theology is correct. What you're saying is not actually biblical. Definitely not in the vein in which you're teaching it. The real miracle is before he found his own tomb. Yeah, see, the real miracle is not that Jesus got out of the grave. No, that's no big deal. Yeah, the real miracle is that there were zombies, yeah. He went and found yours. He is always putting people before himself. He said, yeah, I get back to mine. My resurrection is going to be easy. I need to find some zombies. Come on. So Jesus said, my resurrection is going to be easy. No big deal. Kind of a yawner, you know. Find Pookie and Ray Ray and Shaniqua and Chris. I want to find those that deserve to die. I don't care how they died. This is a once in a lifetime deal. I'm about to loose the spirit of God on the earth. And before he brings tongues and before he brings a church, he's going to bring the dead back to life. That's going to begin the beginning of this apostolic movement. It's going to be the dead will be raised. And not only will they be raised. Apostolic movement? I'm going to show their family. I'm going to show their neighbors. I'm going to show their sisters. I'm going to show their brothers. I'm going to show their celebrators. I'm going to show their haters that it doesn't matter how I die. He is committed to me raising me up. Come on, good evening, all nations. But be raised in this season. We have been... Be raised in this season. Now it's just slipped into utter nonsense. Celebrating his resurrection for the last 2,000 years. I think it's about time you celebrate your own. I think it's about time you celebrate the lifted life. Jesus said as Moses was lifted in this desert, so will the Son of Man be lifted up. And if I... If I be lifted, I'll draw all men to me. He is the lifted one, and he's trying to lift you. He's the lifted one who's trying to lift me. (sighs) This is the untold resurrection thriller. Yeah, there's a reason why this resurrection thriller has remained untold until this Easter. Because it's not biblical. It's this is a lie from the from the sinful heart of Dr. Matthew Stevenson. Factually. Jesus was not the only one to get up. We were zombies. They were zombies. This doesn't even make any sense. The source was death. But his death, him going down, was so that you wouldn't go under. And he raises men back to life. Listen to me, and I don't want to start a riot. But it's easy for him to raise the dead. If he did it in mass, let's just say there were 500 of them. 
so we've gone from 1,000 to 500. Okay. Don't you think he could send something to 7359 Chappelle and get a couple of us that feels like they're dying? Yeah, feels like they're dying. These were actually dead people. They were dead, stone cold dead. Their bodies were rotting dead, and they got out of the grave. That's what's going on here. Sickness and dying of disease and dying of addiction and dying of regret and dying of oppression. Your death is easy. The hardest dying of debt. That's not dying. It's already been one. Now what he's doing is releasing the spirit of God to put life back into your life and to break the authority of death over you. I believe I see demons running up out of here. I can see them on the ceiling. They look like you see demons on the ceiling. Wow, it's like the sixth sense. Yeah, frogs, and they're getting on up out of here. Oh, oh they look like frogs. Oh, wow, he can see demons right there in church. Wow. <laughs> I gotta do it one time. Where is your stick? Oh, grave! Where is your victim? Yeah, the guy's got chops. I mean, no doubt. But not theological. Sound doctrine. Exegetical. Good hermeneutics. Christ-centered chops. No, he's just really good at theatrics. We are a lifted people, and he is so committed to making sure that through his death, what's after you cannot kill you. I've got an encouragement for you, beloved. If it could have killed you by now, it absolutely would have done it. Yeah, every one of those people are going to be in a grave. How many years? You know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50, 100 years from now, they'll all be in a grave. Christ continues to tarry. What are you talking about? I need to have a Baptist fit for the life giver, the life giver, the life giver. Oh, that ain't no fit. That's Hail Mary full of grace. The Lord is with you. I want you to... Did you just say Hail Mary full of grace? What? About his mama and praise the son real quick. Hallelujah! Praise the sun real quick. For the thief come if not, come on, help me praise him. I want to hear you praise him. What for to still kill and destroy? What exactly am I praising him for again? But, ah, yeah, my ears just got cleaned out again. That you might have life. Come on, testify to three people telling me he brought me back. He brought me back. He brought me back. He brought me back. So you want them to testify to people that he them back okay open your mouth listen to me I, I i'm a raised man i'm a resurrection man he brought me up from the grave i'm telling you he raised me <laughs> i'm a resurrection man okay from the dead and sent me to a dying generation slap somebody upside the head and tell him he brought me back he brought me back elbow somebody with a bad wig on tell him he brought me back he brought me back he brought me back he brought me back i was destined to die purpose to die yeah sad part is rather than actually preaching that because Christ has been raised and we have been united with him in his death and his resurrection and baptism, we too will rise again. He'll call us from our physical graves to a new heaven and a new earth because he has bled and died for our sins. All this other stuff that this guy's been preaching, total nonsense.
I need some Advil. Go your head back. Say yes. Gotta love the Hammond B3 though. Yeah, it's classic sound. Death cannot have you. And why would that be exactly? The Bible say that the grave is never full. It always wants more. So Jesus robbed the grave. By raising a resurrected nation, those zombies became the first fruit of Christianity. Jesus' statement was, this is what I will do forever. I will reach behind the tombs of men and I will raise him up from their low plate. I don't care what kills him, I will reach beyond their tombs. Now, some of you ought to be going crazy right now because you can't move the thing that's over you. I'm done. It's you can't move the thing that's over me. Okay, so now we're allegorizing death. Take the Spirit of God to move the rock that's in front of you. Yeah, we're allegorizing the rock. Some of you ought to be praising God because the Holy Ghost is still moving rocks. He is still moving obstructions. The Father is seated and the Son is next to Him. But I'm here to tell you the Holy Ghost is still moving. He's moving rocks and blockages and barricades. He's moving red tape. He is. He's moving blockages and red tape. Wow. There's some power right there, yeah. Moving you, uh, those of you that have been quarantined, uh, those of you that have been taped off, uh, and the devil is trying to act like you can't have uh, what God said you can have. Uh, how many of you know he's still moving? I'm working in here. I said he's still moving. Uh, he's still moving. Uh, he's still moving. If you're here right now, and you have never publicly accepted the Lord, Really? Yeah, so now we're going to try to convince people to make a decision to accept the Lord. What a mess. So that was contestant number seven, the last of this year's contestants in the 2017 Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. That was Dr. Matthew Stevenson, and wow, what a train wreck. Just go back. And compare. Compare the Easter sermons we played last week. Compare it to our contestants from this week. And here's the sad part. I picked the best of the worst, but every sermon I reviewed was just like all of these. And I literally previewed hundreds. It's a mess out there. Lack of preaching of Christ, lack of ability to proclaim the gospel, lack of ability to properly distinguish law and gospel, and a con constant proclivity to 
Narsajit biblical texts allegorize elements of the resurrection story. And rather than preach what Scripture actually reveals Christ accomplished for us by his death and resurrection, preach a bunch of nonsense and promises that God never made. Zombie theology. What a mess. Just so you know, the uh, voting will begin probably over the weekend. I need a, I'm juggling a few things at the moment and need a bit, little bit of time to put together the survey so that we can begin recording your vote for this year's 2017 Worst Easter Sermon of the Year contest. So what would you think? love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there, at Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. Amen.